0: Uh, the way i see it is if you if you can't send your data to burning man don't put it on any kind of blockchain uh, blockchains both private and public are digital nudist colonies i'm tor bear from enigma and welcome to decentralize
1: this Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This, presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Baer. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today my guest is Mr. John Wolpert. John currently works at ConsenSys on the Web3 Studio team, where they're helping drive adoption of the decentralized web by identifying and building solutions using all kinds of decentralized technologies. John has decades of entrepreneurial experience, and he previously co founded IBM's blockchain business unit as well as Hyperledger Fabric. He also currently helps lead the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance's mainnet working group, where Enigma is a contributing member. On this episode, John talks with me about why the world needs a single mainnet, how to embrace the boring when it comes to blockchain the new relationship between public and private blockchains, the importance of protecting sensitive data and business logic, and why everyone should get on board the magic bus. I'm sure he'll explain. Uh, John has an incredible depth of knowledge about not just decentralized technologies, but also the needs of the businesses that we hope will adopt and evangelize these technologies. He really is somebody who understands what it'll take to drive mass adoption, and create an internet that'll work better for both individuals and institutions. But I'd rather let him explain all that in his own words. So without any further introduction, here is John Wolpert. John, thank you so much for joining me on Decentralize This. I am so glad you could join me.
0: Thanks, Taurus. Good to be here.
1: So we start every episode the same way, just personally professionally. Uh, who is John Wolpert?
0: Oh, well, um, I'm a member of Consensus. Uh, I work for uh, a, a team called Web3 Studio. Uh, our job is to uh, work, find novel, unexpected uses of Web3 technology, blockchain, and, and the like, in particular, the main net, and build open source code that helps inspire and enable more people to build more things with it. So it's almost like uh, inventing new kinds of Legos and packaging them up into a a box, putting a picture on the top that shows you something you could build with it, and then saying, hey, knock yourself out, build whatever you like.
1: Uh, That's a great analogy. I love that, being the the Lego maker. Everybody loves Legos. That's what you're doing today. Uh, I think over the course of this podcast, we'll get into some of the things that you Used to do, but it it's going to become apparent pretty quickly that you're extremely knowledgeable, not only about blockchain but all kinds of distributed systems and especially the use cases for real companies and enterprises looking to do things like improve operations, build products, etc. A lot of people are going to benefit from that, uh, but we're going to start slow and steady since many of them might not be as familiar with that side of the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. So maybe first and foremost, I want to run a phrase by you that I hear all the time now, which is blockchain, not Bitcoin. And there's people who say that the only appropriate use case for blockchains is Bitcoin. But then there's people on the other side who are saying the technology has promised, but Bitcoin is doomed. So... I think that's a false choice, really, but where, where do you personally fall on that question? What, what's really interesting here?
0: I guess I position myself, my you know what I spend my time. You know there's an old saying, uh, pay attention to what you pay attention to. And what I pay attention to is uh, fixing or upgrading or evolving the internet. And um, in particular, you know we, we, we need a stateful, um, component to the internet to to do some things we'd like to do, and we don't have one. Uh, we need you know any distributed system, any set of machines that need to syncopate, need to work together and not make a mess, need to have a common frame of reference. Have to have something, some other state machine that can um, help all, all the other machines coordinate and to me, the the, uh, the mainnet, not not blockchain technology, but specifically the blockchain technology applied as a, um, a mainnet, and I'll use the word, I try to use it sparingly, but I'll say decentralized um, mainnet. And when I say decentralized, I specifically mean a network that can provide that service of so being a common frame of reference um, without the risk of any, um, Group or individual taking it over or preventing anyone from conducting uh, valid transactions on it or valid uh, entries on it. So, f- from my point of view, I think of I think of blockchain as middleware. A lot of people think of blockchains as a crud a CRUD layer or maybe a crew or maybe a cur layer. Right? It's a, you know you can't delete, but you can uh, you know you can create etc. So um, I, I don't think of it so much as a place I put data or a place that I run business logic, certainly not confidential data or confidential business logic or private data, um, but rather as a way to um, help different kinds of state machines. And I mean, not just blockchains, but SAP, Oracle apps, um your, I guess maybe your COBOL, homegrown COBOL AR, pay, AP system, right? Accounts Payable Accounts Receivable System, whatever it is, uh, it's a state machine. And if you want those that state machine to have records on it that you're confident are consistent with the records of other people without putting that data and those, that business logic on some other machine that is held in common, which is, I think, a lot of how how people think of a of a private blockchains, right? Is something that is a single point of truth, right? Which means we all put our data in this one singleton, this one location, and we maintain it together. Well, I don't know that I like that, right? I don't know that I want to put sensitive private data in the clear or in even encrypted, in, in that meaning meaning you know scrambled up bits, right? Where the all the bits are there. I don't like that idea because. All I need to do is, you know, all, all Mr. Robot needs to do is hack one you know, the worst system admin in that consortium. And they might not be able to tamper with the data, but they sure can see it. And for a lot of companies, that's not a good idea. So uh, the way I see it is, if you if you can't send your data to Burning Man, don't put it on any kind of blockchain. Uh, blockchains, both private and public, are digital nudist colonies. And that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, hey, there's there's a lot of utility in that but not for everything. So you have to know what you're using it for. And I see a way of using a public mainnet as a way of of breaking down silos, but using it in such a way that I'm not actually exposing any strategic intelligence or leaving breadcrumbs along the trail for somebody to make my my situation or or ascertain my strategic position or my business relationships uh, in the process. And that's a bit of a magic trick and we're only just learning how to do that. So I have a very kind of a different way of thinking about blockchain. And I guess I couldn't think of this the blockchain this way to kind of bring it back around to your original point or question. Uh, you couldn't think of a block, of blockchain in this way if blockchains didn't have um, something that they needed to do already, like cryptocurrency, right? So to me, it's a big bulletin board that I can use that is always on because it's doing something it already needs to do so I don't have to set one up. If yeah. that makes sense.
1: No, it does. I mean, there was so much good stuff in what you just said that it's going to take all episode and probably more to to dig up. Uh but you've touched on so many things there. You've touched about this need for privacy, you've touched on this idea of expanding the power of distributed technologies beyond just value transfer and value tracking. You know, I, there there's so much good stuff. I let's start with an expression that you used early on in your answer that I've heard you describe this expression before as so unwieldy that it has no chance of becoming a buzz phrase, uh, which is the stateful internet. Uh, And since we can't, and since we can't turn it into a slogan, right, it's not as easy to say like stateful internet for everything as it is to say blockchain for everything, right? Like you may as well try to like define it as clearly as you possible can. So what differentiates today's internet, what a lot of people, I guess, would be calling web two within the space from the stateful internet? Like, what is the biggest thing that we would gain that like, maybe, maybe an end user would perceive, or maybe an end user wouldn't perceive, but what are we really gaining moving to the stateful internet? And what is it?
0: Right on. Yeah. So statefulness, yeah, that's kind of a wonky term, right? Um, uh, but let me, let me break it down pretty succinctly. I think if you think about what the internet did in 1969, when the first packet went from what UCLA to, to, um, Menlo park SRI, um, just a few years after I was born, um, that, that was a stateless system. That is, you know, they set up a, a set of, of, um, machines, uh, routers effectively, and, I wonder if they call them routers in those days. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Good question. But they, uh, you know, they set up some machines and they said, hey, uh, you know, take it when you see, when you see this packet, take it and pass it along. Um, it's stateless because it doesn't remember anything. You know, when you, you know, you're just passing packets, pass, you know, get a packet, packet, pass a packet. And those are the we call them datagrams, right? That, that architecture was really very inefficient, but had one po- very powerful attribute, which was. It was hard to kill it. You could drop a nuke in the middle of it and uh, it would still work. The remaining nodes would, would still, you know, uh, find each other and work. And so was, the internet is <clears throat> largely stateless. I mean, there, there are some state things that have memory like uh, DNS and you know, where, where you are maintaining some state. And that's those are the trickiest parts of the internet. But the, in its essence, you're just passing packets. You know, the router doesn't have to remember... What it was doing before, it doesn't have to coordinate what it thinks it's doing right now with anybody else. Um, and if you have to do that, you don't scale the way the internet did, at least not with that, you know, that era, epics of technology, that that technology. And in fact, there's some kind of basic laws of physics or laws of logic that prevent um, a stateful system to just willing, to, you know, to just simply. Scale like that, so that, you know, to have millions of machines doing, you know, maintaining the integrity of the state of the ledger of, of a of a you know, not just a database, but you know, of a, a whole system. Turn the page you now. You know, in 1994, I, I think uh, famously, Mark Andreessen uh, and uh, you know, I think before Netscape, um, really wanted to see a a web that had, you know, that was able to handle state and if you'd had that you wouldn't almost wouldn't need uh, web crawlers to do search you wouldn't need to have to crawl the whole web to back solve all the links and do search right or do uh, do or do page rank algorithms and that sort of thing but yeah we just you know we just didn't have a way of doing that scalably at the time so no state consequently you have to you know when you start doing interesting applications that require state like you know and require memory require Business logic that requires memory, Um, you wind up um, relying upon uh, providers of storage, memory, um, and compute, and they become Google and Facebook and and other uh, other companies.
1: We're going to get to talk about Google and Facebook and those other companies now, right? Like where those are very much the the centralized points of failure of today's web. And uh, it it remains to be seen what what role they're going to play in whatever the next version of the Internet, the stateful Internet potentially, is going to be. Uh, Before we get there.
0: In fairness to them, we should say they're also the centralized enablers of all the stuff we like to do. Uh, So thank you, all you guys, for doing that. (laughs) We're now privileged enough to be able to... uh, um, be dissatisfied with that, right? right. So, like many process. things,
1: like many things in capitalism, like their success kind of sowed the seeds potentially of the of their own disruption. Uh, and it, it's just interesting to see, like, it, so much of what they're built on as a business model is 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 being threatened potentially by this next phase of the internet. But so much of what they've built for people and the value of their products it, that isn't going anywhere. People are always going to have. A desire to connect with each other. They're going to have a desire for knowledge. So the, the needs haven't gone anywhere. It's just, I'm not entirely certain how monetizing search and monetizing social interaction are going to translate to this next phase of the web. And if they're going to be the ones to take advantage of it, well, maybe you have a quick thought on uh, what you see the role of like Google's and Facebook's to be in the stateful internet or whether it'll change anything for them at all.
0: Oh, I think things tend not to go away, right? Not too much. Um, and there are some basic, uh, things that, that, you know, we're going to need to work out in a web three world. Um, you know, somebody wanted me actually more than a couple people have asked me to think about starting a kind of a web three Uber, um, in a past life. I, I started one of the first cars on the map, um, Ride-sharing apps, if you want to call it that, it was for taxis though. And um, so, knowing that, they're like, "Hey, you should you should disrupt Uber. They disrupted you." And I said, "Well, last you know, I was there. I had a front row seat to all this. And what you give somebody like uh, the leadership of Uber, and they actually had a pretty they had a pretty sharp original CEO um, who he's got a great story and he's done very well and." I mean, people forget about the Uber's first CEO. I really liked this guy. He was, he really was interested in the world. He was, he was interested in understanding ground transit. And we would go to TLPA meetings, taxi paratransit, you know, meetings, and he would really listen to people. And I I like this guy. And so, um, you know, they were disrupting the industry and you could say, well, I break things to fix them, which is fine. But at the end of the day, you don't get you don't get money for that. What well, you get you don't get money for disruption to to do um, to do big things. You get money from people like Bill Gurley and uh, and uh, Benchmark Capital and and uh, First Round Capital because they think that they're going to get rents later on. So you know we say, well, hey, wouldn't it be great to have an Uber where the drivers got all the money? I said, yeah, I was trying to build something kind of like that. Problem is, it's it does you know it's not about the infrastructure or the technology. We in the early days we had effectively the same app. I mean, I think they kind of looked at our app and built another one. Not not to say that they stole anything. They didn't. Um, you know, it was a pretty obvious idea. Hey, put cars on a map. We just did it a few months before they did. And um, you know, they called up one day and said, Hey, you're gonna are you gonna go into limos? And I said, I said No. <laughs> We got all these taxi drivers and they said, okay, thanks. And off they went. What they, what they were successful at was getting everybody to say the word Uber at the same time that costs billion dollars. It's, you know, building a two sided mar- or multi-sided market is expensive. So how am I going to get somebody to give me a billion dollars to go around the world, convincing people to say uh, my brand at, at the same time and, and download the app. At the same time, because you have to have supply and demand come in at the same time. Otherwise, your suppliers go away or your buyers go away because they don't see anybody there to pick them up. Right. Um, So that's a big, delicate balance. And, uh, you know, long story long, um, I I, I think that it's not enough to just say, oh, well, we're going to take that same functionality and put it on a decentralized system and give all the money to the drivers. I'd like nothing better. Um, But you see my conundrum.
1: Yeah, you've gotten right to the heart of an issue that we've touched, I think, on this podcast previously. But you have a very uh, different path to approaching the question from some other people. We've had some people on this podcast who are trying to use decentralized technologies to disrupt incumbents. But the, the question there is always, is decentralization even like a competitive advantage or is it more of a hindrance like it's it's really hard to build decentralized technologies especially if you're doing it like at the application layer and then you also have to build a market this comes up with like blockchain based gaming like it's hard to build a good (laughs) game and now you got to do it on the blockchain so like it is is a at what point does decentralization even become an advantage for somebody is it only at uh the protocol level you know, versus the application level, this, this is something that I think you would have a really good perspective on.
0: Well, yeah, the, the, the at the protocol level, again, yeah, I, I tend to see it as middleware. So I don't think users are even going to know that it's that they're using a blockchain. Um, it, it's not a front and center kind of technology. Uh, think of it this way, you know, IBM made a product called MQ series, one of the most profitable uh, software products ever they ever made. No one, Inside or outside of the industry. If I say, hey, uh, what do you think of MQ series? Unless you're one of a very small number of people, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But 80% of your money knows very well what MQ series is because it is the message queue that handles a lot of the world's systems, you know, system integration, right? So, again, you need a common frame of reference. MQ is one way to do it. Now, it's incredibly expensive. you got to set it up for each you know, every integration you want to do or, or, you know, set of integrations, it's, it's, you know, it's old school, but it, you know, and there are better ways to do things today. But uh, the point is, it was a very p- important piece of technology in its time. It still is. And nobody knows what it is. So I, I, I say blockchain embrace the boring should be the uh, the movie slug title for 2020 and beyond.
1: Right. right. See that. And that's the slogan, right? Like stateful internet is what we're building and embrace the boring as the call to action. And, and forgive me
0: if we don't get a billion users. That packet passing, if you think of, if you reduce the internet to, it's kind of boring sounding, but I don't know. We did some exciting things with it. Right. And, and, and people are like, Oh, I'm, I need, well, how do you sell the blockchain? I'm like, well, how do you sell the internet? Tell you what, how do you, how about you sell books using the internet to do it better? <laughs> right? So focus on your business and what you need to do, what you need to, to, to build that business. And 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 I think you'll always be true.
1: Speaking of businesses, so part of your background we haven't really touched on is, you know, you, you were a co-founder of Hyperledger, you built IBM's blockchain business. And now it seems like you, we were talking about private blockchains, right? And maybe those aren't the answer after all. So what what's your take on that? Like, do, do you believe that private blockchains have value today or will have value in the future? And, and how is this, how is this uh, coming into play relative to your focus today on the mainnet initiative?
0: Right. So we in 2015, when we got going on blockchain, uh, when I was at IBM, um, we intended to start on Ethereum. And we worked really hard to throughout the summer to kind of get up around that. And at some point, we just realized that the the things that we were interested in, like uh, confidentiality—not just privacy, but confidentiality—meaning that the the code that embodies your business logic can't be run by without without access controls because that code itself could give away something about your business that you don't want to give away in terms of uh, intelligence. Um, that was a very advanced requirement that companies that the company like IBM tends to listen to, uh, were very interested in. Right. And so, uh, and, and we're, we were very much, I mean, my, the, the part of IBM, I lived in for most of my career, I was an IBMer three times. I left and started companies and came back left and came back. And, um, uh, always worked for really interesting, fun people like Jerry Cuomo, who's great, great, um, great person and a, a, a great uh, innovator. And um, uh, you know, we, as open source people, we we said, look, you know, this open source community has some priorities, and if we try to muscle in and defo- refocus the priorities on stuff we want, we're gonna we're gonna mess this thing up too early. Um, and so we went off and tried to build something else and the open source, open source to that. And you think, well, ideally in an open source world, if it weren't for human ego, um, you know, where, you know, open source theft is, is a virtue, right? You know, we should all be stealing from each other, our best ideas. So we figured we'd just lay down a lot of ideas into this thing called ultimately called fabric, originally called OBC. And, and, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, the best ideas would get, it would fall out. Five years later, we, you know, we, we've gone through this sort of period um, in the industry of of uh, fragmentation, right? Lots of different uh, projects going on. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a natural evolution of um, early te- uh, early stage technology. But now I think uh, 2020 and 2021 is, uh, is the start of the age of, re- you know, re- uh, new age of convergence. So you're starting to see you know, the uh, ethereum foundation and the enterprise ethereum alliance are working you know much more tightly together and hyperledger and EEA are working together and are have joined each other's memberships and uh joe lubin from ethereum is now on the board of hyperledger you know and and hyperledger besu is the, is a the first ethereum mainnet cli- you know capable client Project on Hyperledger. I mean, it's now we're starting to see this convergence happen. And uh, once convergence happens, things start to become beautifully boring, right? And we start to start to use the right tool for the right job. And we get back to doing business or we get back to the business of building practical, important, useful things.
1: Well, there's plenty of things to build, right? That, that aren't just figuring out like what the main net is. It's, it's everything that sort of surrounds that ecosystem. So,
0: yeah, yes. And and you, and you mentioned, um, I should, I should, you know, answer your question about private blockchains. Um, y- sure. I, uh, <laughs> it seems to be my, my lot right now to, to go around saying, Hey, I built this big private blockchain and now I've thought better of that. And I suppose, you know, if I'm honest, um, that is, there's some truth in that. However, first of all, the work that was done to build fabric is some of the, you know, I think some of the guys that built that should get the Turing Award for some really important advances in distributed system thinking. Uh, people like Gary Singh and, and Ben Wynn and others. I mean, there's there's some smart people that did some important work and they should be recognized for that. And, and there's great work in it. Uh, yeah. Is it, is it overbuilt? Cause that's what IBM does, right? We go and throw the kitchen sink in and then go next door, rip their kitchen sink out, throw that into. Sure. That's what we do. And it was quite a humbling experience because I used to snicker at other product executives who would wind up, you know, doing this big bloaty thing. And then when I got my at bat, you know, sure enough, it turns out that the machine kind of likes to do that. And it's pretty hard not to, to, to make it not do that. So, okay. That, you know, that would be as, as hard of a slam on my old team as I'll, as I'll give it, because I, I have great respect for the work. But, yeah, it's a little bloaty, sure. I, I think that most of them would say so in, in candor. Um, but it, is it useful? Hell yeah, it's useful. There's a lot of utility in having a shared database with um, third parties. And I don't say that in a snickery sort of way. Um, I think uh, 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 ultimately it'll probably be called IBM Cloud Shared Data Services. And there'll be nothing wrong with that. There's lots of things you can imagine using that for, right? And let's not quibble over whether it's a blockchain or not, right? It's useful. Who cares what it is, wh- wh- what you call it? Um, ultimately, though, it creates every private blockchains might bust down one silo, but has now erected a new silo. It may be a larger scale. Now you have 20 companies in a consortium. Now you have a 20 company silo or a 100 company silo. You still have a silo. And that's why I say, you know, ultimately, as we get good at those things, um, we need to have a mainnet. Um, and yeah, I do believe that Ethereum ETH2 is a good candidate for that mainnet, but I want to stipulate it's the mainnet I care about. It's the internet I care about. And I think that if it's not Ethereum, it needs to have a lot of the attributes that look a lot like Ethereum or at least ETH2. But I want to say it that way, right? I'm not a, I'm not in the can for Ethereum so much as I am in the can for this set of attributes for a main net, a common frame of reference at the, let's not say at the top of the pyramid, it's actually at the tr- bottom of the trench. It's the most boring thing you need in a stateful internet. You know, you just need this kind of slow, doesn't have to be particularly fast, uh, slow common frame of reference. That is the ultimate sort of notary of notaries of notaries um, or the, uh, you know the binding agent or you know the thing that you use to make sure that you don't have race conditions and non-determinism and and uh deadlocks and such right uh, you need a common frame of reference it's a basic law of physics for distributed systems and you want that final settlement layer to be um one that dr evil can't take over or at least is is, is, is that's the attribute you want you want to ma- maximize for in the main net is um, nobody can take it over. And the profit motive for providing it is gone. I mean, the reason why we have an internet, not a bunch of internets, usually, and, you, know, you can do that, um, is because there's no money in passing packets around, right? There's money underneath that, or in, and over and above and around it. But um, at some point, standards take a, a kind of a rise and say, you know what, we don't need to use market forces to optimize this thing anymore it's become boring it's become something that is much where where we it's much better if it's a public good commons and let's take the profit motive away from it so that a bunch of different providers don't try to balkanize the the user base uh to get their little slice of it out and i think that's what i think i think
1: would you say that the sort of like internet versus intranet comparison that I hear thrown around for main nets versus this ecosystem of private blockchains. Is that a fair analogy or, or is it a bit off?
0: Um, well, I would say that there are state machines and then there is, they're not main nets, plural, to be very clear. And this is maybe controversial on its face. Um, I'm saying that there needs ultimately to be a main net, for anything that wants to interrupt with other things it is essential you don't get to have main nets plural you need one state machine that serves all the other state machines
1: sure so do we right. have do we have today do we have one internet
0: well yeah <laughs> right so we have so then i well, think so then i think the analogy that you, that you can uh, you can use to to uh, it pass packets with virtually any other thing you want to. Right? Yeah,
1: that's why I'm saying I think the analogy maybe actually is accurate in that we're going to have one mainnet, we're going to have one internet, but maybe this whole ecosystem that surrounds this, maybe there are these little, like it's like a fractal, right, of, of other yeah, smaller yeah. The, systems the, that surround it.
0: Yeah, the thing that... The, I, I i'm hoping we get over fairly quickly is this land grab towards being the main net i i think i wrote the line that um my old colleagues use you know there won't be one chain to rule them all i think i wrote that line i was dead wrong <laughs> it's if you don't want to have an endless battle at the gates of Mordor, you need to have one chain that serves them all so that they all so the rest of them can go optimize for all sorts of different you can call it use cases right you know so they're there are not Ethereum. Uh, there are blo- a bunch of, of, of blockchains that do a really good job of different things. I just don't want them to be the ultimate connective tissue for the internet.
1: Yep, and that makes total and that makes total sense. Uh, I just think that now, now you are poking at maybe the the greatest paradox of this space, which is so much of it has been built around this paradigm of decentralization, and now we're saying that the greatest value will be created if we have a single identity for for a mainnet and it sounds like centralization but realistically what it's enabling is a more decentralized ecosystem to result from having this like single point of stateful truth do you feel like that's a weird paradox
0: yes and and you just put your finger right on the reason why such a mainnet needs to have the attributes uh, the primary attribute of, of being as decentralized as humanly and inhumanly possible. And that is because you're right. Ultimately, the laws of physics require that it you have a singleton that serves all other state machines other or that want to work together. I mean, if you don't want to work with anybody else, then game over, right? It's, you don't need anything at all. Uh, but if you want to interrupt, if you want to not just interrupt, but syncopate, right? If you want to um, yeah, if you want to have good system integration, then you need to have a, a single point or uh, a, a single common frame of reference. And so um, that common frame of reference, <laughs> sorry for my dog, um, that common frame of reference, you know, I, I think it, it, it needs to be uh, as decentralized as possible so that the vanishing point of control resolves into nobody in control. Yeah, so the vanishing point of control results in nobody in control of that vanishing point, right? So yeah, if you you, ultimately we do, we need a singleton that serves everything else that wants to work together, and it would be best if no set of humans can get their uh, can get in there and become toll-loving trolls that make everybody you know, pay up or uh, pay rents or, you know. yeah
1: know. I mean, maybe, maybe the value that we're trying to create here with the stateful internet does revolve around this idea that we're trying to remove gatekeepers. We're trying to remove maybe the, the rent seekers at these very fundamental layers that, as you're saying, maybe should be public goods. Uh, this might be a good time then to talk about another phrase that I've heard you use, uh, the magic bus. And this would be a really good time for you to explain, uh, the origins maybe, uh, of the magic bus. And maybe if there's any, uh, fun songs associated with it, you can sing them for us
0: on the podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I find it just amusing to call it. So obviously, uh, uh message bus is, a you know, walkie, you know, technical term in the, you know, in, in, in this field, uh, you know, you need a message bus or a message queue for distributed systems in various places. And um, if you think about, if you think about the, uh, a mainnet in the most boring possible terms, it sort of looks like a bulletin board, a message bus. And so, but it's kind of got some magical properties that make it a special message bus. You can do um, cool things like. Uh, um, you know, something I call black hole sum, which is, um, you know, have a double blind, uh, you know, scenario where nobody actually has the information, but you can compute on the information. Um, you can conduct business with other parties in such a way that nobody knows that you're conducting those, that business, unless you're party to that, that activity. Um, and if you look at the the ledger, it's gonna just kind of look like noise. Um, that's a pretty cool feature. Um, and there's others and that, that, uh, a variety of people are working on. And yeah, we, you know, the, the, the uh, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance has a, a working group now called the Mainnet Working Group, which is a joint uh, work with um, the Ethereum Foundation, which is the first time I think that those two organizations have worked on a working group together or supported it. So uh in in a in a kind of structured way I should I should say. And so that that is um the all of that kind of wraps up to what I would call the magic bus. So I think the next two years and, and you know, probably con- concurrent with the rollout of the roadmap for ETH, Ethereum two, ETH two, two dot is the um is this time where it's it's going to be important for um, us to get to a point where, yeah, we're we're making this technology pervasive, not necessarily popular in the public eye, but pervasive that it you know that it has pervasive utility, that everybody can take a piece of it, and use it, and the, uh, you know so if we see thirty thousand developers in Java Center two or three years from now, like we did back in nineteen ninety eight with the with Java one, um, then I'll know that we've we've uh, that we've all gotten on the magic bus.
1: Your dog is a huge fan of the Magic Bus.
0: Yeah, sorry, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, your enthusiasm for it is is infectious, right? And a lot of the things that you're talking about, right, being able to do sort of distributed computations and protecting the data in use or being able to protect the sensitive business logic, they're obviously things that I think a lot about in my day job. But it's clear based on everything we're discussing that Ultimately, this is the value that's being created in all of this. And the value for end users is going to be created maybe not by direct interactions with blockchains themselves, but interacting with the ecosystems that the mainnet, whatever it is, is is going to enable. And I, I really love the way that on this podcast you've been able to position the why of blockchain as being something so fundamental to the future of the internet versus just something that becomes a new way to sort of move value around right like maybe that's how it started uh as a technology but it can be a lot more especially if it's looked at in the context of a a long history of distributed systems and and databases and data platforms like there's a lot here and obviously we're not going to dig it all up on one podcast but this takes me i guess to my to my final question um one of my recent guests was Andreas Antonopoulos, and he is an amazing educator, an amazing speaker, especially talking about blockchains, especially talking about open blockchains and public blockchains. And we spoke quite a bit about uh, Libra in particular, uh, which is essentially, if you if you look at how it was described, sort of a consortium blockchain with known validators. And Andreas expressed a great deal, of skepticism about Libra, as as well as skepticism about its backers. And I've seen you talk a bit before about how companies are potentially concerned with decentralization and pseudonymity on the Ethereum mainnet, for example, and how that all affects its perceived reliability or or their willingness to adopt it. So what do you think, when you look at the future of Ethereum, when you look at the future of maybe Libra with no validators, you know, what what is really the key to mass adoption here? Maybe speaking from like the perspective of the enterprises who are going to be adopting these technologies, adopting a mainnet, this idea of a single mainnet, like wh- where does Libra play in all of this? How is it helping us frame the problem better, knowing that this is essentially what people are perceiving as an alternative to the Ethereum mainnet.
0: I, I would say that uh, I don't have a, a real view on on um, any um, application of blockchain. And I would say that um, sometimes because we build these full um, uh, 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 top to bottom stacks. Uh, for an application. Right? We say, hey, here's the protocol, here's the underlying, Every all the layers are there, custom built for this one application, right? That was Bitcoin to begin with, right? That was uh, a fully integrated thing. And not for nothing, by the way, Fabric was originally, you know what? Fabric was called Fabric. We named it Fabric because we wanted to say, this is not supposed to become a platform. Now, it kind of did because humans, but... <laughs> It was supposed to be a fabric. And I remember, you know, be, be, being very emphatic to say, with people when we were starting it up to say, it's a fabric. A fabric means, you know, it's not trying to define the whole thing. It's, it's you know, it's not even the consensus layer. It might be the, the way consensus, uh, uh, you know, uh, components um, con- connect to the base layer, right? So I used to say, if you could build Ethereum or Bitcoin in half the time using fabric, then we did our job. Now, it, it didn't become that. It became more than that. There's no question. But that's why it was called Fabric. That and the fact that one of the DevOps team uh, just named the repo Fabric, which I I love that story because like, there was no marketing involved. Like, this guy in <laughs> DevOps, just everybody started calling it Fabric, and that was literally what happened. Um, so I, you know, I don't have a view on any particular application, right? Mm. Um, but I would say that there's no there's no reason there can't be a world where the application of somebody's currency scheme, or and I don't mean scheme, uh, I lived a lot of years in, in Australia and scheme doesn't mean the same thing as it does here, um, you know, it, uh, uh, format or uh, idea or concept. Um, uh, it, you know, scheme sounds kind of pejorative, I'm not trying to say that it is. Um, yeah, the uh, th- 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 there's no reason that th- that isn't in fact the, application the coal face of the user experience or the maybe one step back from the user experience but it's still going to need a common frame of reference to inter- to work with other state machines do you see and and i i should think again that the thing i want in that final common frame of reference is is the is the nth a maximization of decentralization and and specifically the resistance to any given set of humans to take it over and either change history or prevent action uh, valid actions.
1: It makes total sense to me. Uh, I think you've done a very good job on this podcast explaining things in very non-tribal terms. So maybe you have some advice for people who are navigating this industry right now who are trying to build who maybe have your same long-term perspective, but are running up against these sort of, again, false choices between we can either have this or we can have that. We can only have Bitcoin and nothing else. We can only have Ethereum but not Libra. Like what is your advice to people who are just trying to build a better internet and they're not trying to pick sides. They're, they're trying to just like ship something that changes lives meaningfully well into the future.
0: Hang on there. I mean, I think that there's, there's a distinction between where you want to slug it out in competition and where you don't. Um, so it's, I, I think that, um, if somebody is building an application or, you know, something that's up the stack, you know, something that's more interesting than the most boring operation that you could possibly think of, which would be the base layer. Um, all those things should be uh, subject to intense, ho- hopefully uh, um, above the board and uh, you know respectful and collegial competition, although it never, you know, it often doesn't work out that way. but you know, um, yeah, we should duke it out, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. and and for a time, there's gonna there's nothing there was nothing wrong with duking it out on the on the main net versus private blockchain versus, you know, the word versus, um, yeah, I don't love it. It's not my favorite term versus this versus that. I, I prefer this and, and that, but in this, but there, there certainly is utility in saying, Hey, you know what, um, I'm going to play to win. And so are you. Um, in fact, I think part of the reason I, I work for Joe Lubin today is that, um, when I was playing on the other side of the, of the field with, on the other team, we were always kind to each other and. Um, now that I'm playing on Joe's team, I'm, I try to be kind to uh, my old co- my old teammates on the other side. It was, it was sort of like playing. Uh, Jerry Cuomo and Joe Lubin are kind of like two coaches that know good that understand good sportsmanship. They're playing against each other, sometimes playing against each other. Now more and more we're playing on the same same team, which is great.
1: Well, maybe that's the best vision then for the future is that we can at least all learn to play on the same terms, speak the same language, have the same end goals, and then just compete where we're meant to compete and, and at least try to treat each other respectfully in the process because this is going to take a couple decades to build out the way that we want. So I think those of us who are serious about building should get used to seeing a lot of each other. And, John, I'm, I'm positive that people are going to be seeing a lot more of you and, and hearing you speak and reading your work. I'm going to add to the podcast description uh, a bunch of links so people can see what you've written on the topic, so people can get more familiar with the mainnet initiative and the magic bus. But I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today to get everybody up to speed, to help me get a better perspective uh, about what you've been building and advocating for over the last decades. And man, it's, it's really been a thrill getting to hear somebody with a nuanced perspective, coming from this angle in the space, it, it is a breath of fresh air. And it, it is a new sense of purpose, I think, for all of us to see just how meaningful all of this could be in the long run. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, Tor. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm a fan of your work. And um, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: If you want to learn more about Enigma, visit www.enigma.co
0: or come to our blog at blog.enigma.co. Thanks for listening.